I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Titus, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Yes, you heard that right, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. This morning, we are resuming our life-changing look at Jesus by going on a field trip to the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11 is where we are going to start. And that being said, I want to warn you, it's going to be a little while before we actually get to Titus 2, 11. I want to set it up for us so that way it has good impact on our hearts. You know, Sunday after Sunday, we are reminded that Jesus is better than everything in every way. And we begin to see him for who and what he is that can be, it can be a life-changing experience. And life change is what this morning is going to be all about. Your life changed. Different. Because of Jesus. We're going to focus on the life-changing component of our life-changing look at Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus now for three plus years. We need to talk about how that should be changing us. So let's pray, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time, and we'll dive in. Let's pray. We haven't gotten there yet, Lord, but we're about in the next few months to learn of Judas who spent all that time with Jesus, who was loved by Jesus, fed by Jesus, taken care of. And yet he betrayed him. Judas left him. He ran to self-destruction. Oh God, I'm fearful. I'm fearful that some in this room might suffer the same fate. Lord, I ask for your power, your power that we just sang about, the power to know the risen life of Jesus, the transformed life of Jesus. Lord, don't, don't let our hearts be hard. As Jesus has ministered to us week in and week out by the power of his spirit, oh God, soften us, help us to absorb him, let us be transformed by him. Let, experience, let us experience this life-changing grace that your word talks about. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Does the way that you've been living your life lately, does it prove to both yourself and the people around you that you know Jesus, that you have found something that's better than everything in every way. You know, your life, it's like a cell phone. It's constantly sending out notifications. It sends out notifications to the people around you about what's important to you. 
Another metaphor we often use is your life, it's like a billboard. Your life puts on display that which is most important to you, to all the people around you. What we need to start asking ourselves is, does the billboard of your life show that you have found Jesus? Is it communicating to everybody around you? Mom, dad, kids, coworkers, friends, schoolmates, that you found something great, the best in fact, and it's changed you. And it's changing you. We've been working through the life of Jesus now since back in 2020. Tomorrow it'll be 2024. We've seen him encounter person after person after person while he walked our planet. My question for you, has you have you become, have you become like the leper? The leper who found a healer. I found him. The man who has taken away my hurts. He's made me whole. He's made me acceptable. Have you come to experience and know Jesus like the blind men that we keep seeing in the Gospels? Jesus gives them their sight. Man, they've got a story to tell. You got a story to tell? I'm going to confess one of my sins. One of the things I have done recently is I've spent probably too much time watching YouTube. There's these videos of people who are colorblind. And they're given these special glasses, and when they put them on, they can see color like everybody else. My favorite, my favorite ones to watch are especially these old guys who don't know these glasses have existed. They've spent their whole lives not seeing color like we see color. Somebody hands them a box, they're like, what are these? And they put them on. And they take them off and they put them on and they start to cry and they walk outside and they look at everything as if they're seeing it for the first time. Wow. What? That's, that's what you see? Friend, have you come to experience Jesus Christ as one who heals the blind and gives us sight. I mean, his fingerprints are everywhere. Do you see him? Have you come to experience him like the dads, the parents who have lost their kids and he raises them from the dead? That'll change your life. That'll change the way you grieve. Is one who has hope? Have you come to experience him? Like the woman at the well and so many other sinners where he says, your sins are forgiven. 
I don't think we, we think about this miracle far deep enough. You realize that we are in the crosshairs of God's full, undiluted wrath. And Jesus jumps in front and he absorbs it. He takes it for you. You're saved. That'll change somebody's life. To know that somebody loved them and sacrificed himself for them in order to save them. Church, have you, have you found, have you experienced the life change that Jesus gives? Because that's, my friend, what happens when you begin to see and you begin to believe and you begin to experience Jesus, the Jesus that we have seen time and time again in the Bible. He changes you. He transforms you. He gives you new eyes. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new appetite. You see and you experience everything differently. Like a healed leper. Like a blind man who's received his sight. Like somebody who has received the dead back into their life. It changes you, friend. In fact... You find yourself living like him, loving like him. Why? Because he loves you. And when you begin to experience his love, there's no stopping the change. His love for us this is an overused metaphor, but his, his love for us, it, it pours down from heaven like a waterfall. And then we're standing there kind of silly trying to capture that love in our hands, in our arms. And there's no way to contain it all. But yet we sit there and we enjoy it and it satisfies us and it brings us peace and at the same time, it brings us peace. It, it, it energizes us. It, it gives us strength. It's so enjoyable. We love his love. But as it pours down from heaven and we try, to, we try to catch it in our hands, we know that we can't. And so what happens is it just it overflows and it spills onto the people who are around us. Shoot, people like Rick, they like catch it and they start flinging it at people because he's just so loving. His love changes us. Following Jesus changes us. His love. It transforms the way that we relate to everyone. That is unless, of course, it doesn't. It changes us unless, of course, our hearts are like concrete and though it flows and it rains and it pours on us week after week after week, like concrete, it just hits and runs off. For three years, for three years, 
We have seen Jesus. We have sensed Jesus. We have experienced Jesus and his love. The question is, is it changing you? Or are you Judas? Are you concrete? I want to shift gears and hit this from another angle. Listen, Jesus is better than everything in every way. When you encounter Jesus, it changes you. It changes you. Let me ask you another set of questions. If Jesus... This Jesus that we've been looking at, if he were to live your life, if he were to invade your body and take over, what would change? What would he do differently? Nothing about your circumstances change. Last night, and don't hate me for this, but my wife and I were sitting in our hot tub. And I ask you this question. I say, if if Jesus were to live your life in your body, if he were to live my life in my body, and nothing were to change, I wonder what he would do differently. And I immediately said, well, I probably wouldn't own a hot tub. No, nothing about your circumstances changed. We own a hot tub. You still have the same family. You still have the same body, the same mind, the same problems, the same everything, but he's in control. He makes your choices. What would be different? What would be different about your emotions, about your fears, about your worry, your anger, your patience? Would he change up your daily routine? How about your goals? Would he have the same goals as you have? Your diet, would that change? The playlist on your phone? What about your hobbies? Would he keep your hobbies? Would he change how you spend your money? What would Jesus do with your cell phone? How would he use your time different? Your talents, your gifts different. Your treasures different. Would he do more? Would he do less? What would you do or what would happen if Jesus lived your life? Who would he reconcile with? Who would he forgive? Who would he witness to? Who would he help? What would he clean? What would he give away? What would he keep? What improvements would he make to your relationship with him? Would he start abide tomorrow? Would he change your thinking, your praying, 
you're praising, you're confessing, you're asking, you're trusting. I wonder if he would talk to himself more. I wonder if he would remind you as he lived your life of his presence. Do you think that if Jesus lived your life with his love, that people around you would notice a difference? Beyond this, what about you? Do you think you would like the changes? Do you think the changes would make your life better, more meaningful, perhaps more joyful, more peaceful, more fulfilling? Do you think the changes would, would make you be the person that deep down inside you've wanted to be for a long time? I think if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then there is a good chance that you have encountered Jesus and there is a part of you that knows that Jesus and his ways are better than anything in every way. So now it's a question of whether or not you will yield. Will you yield your life to him? Will you, will, 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 will you stop fighting him? Would you, would you stop fighting what he would do differently if he lived your life with your circumstances? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Cornerstone, it's been three plus years. Three plus years. Is he better or not? People who know Jesus, they're changed by Jesus. They start living like Jesus. It's why I had you turn to Titus chapter 2. It's the message of Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. This is chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, I think, is the heartbeat of the book of Titus. It pumps, and what this, these two verses do is it just kind of pumps the blood, it pumps the life to the other verses in this three-chapter epistle named Titus. So this brings us to our first point here in the book of Titus, and that is this, to know Jesus is to live like Jesus. To know Jesus is to live like Jesus. Look at verse 11. It says there, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Church, the grace of God. I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than the grace of God. We all know that the mercy of God means that he doesn't treat us like we deserve. Oh, we deserve to be treated poorly. But his grace, his grace treats us as if we're his perfect children. The grace of God has appeared. We know that the grace of God was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, 
talks about before time began, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you read a few more verses down, John chapter 1, verse 14. It tells us that the Word was made flesh, that's Jesus, the message of Christmas, and he was full of something. What was he full of? Full of grace and truth. So Jesus invades our planet. He's the manifestation of God's grace, of God's goodness, of everything good God can give us. It's, it's wrapped up in the person of Jesus. So he sends us Jesus, but he doesn't send Jesus alone. He sends him with a gift. What is it? The end of verse 11 tells us, bringing salvation for all people. This is the gospel. The one who's better than everything in every way has appeared. And not only did he appear, he brought you eternal salvation, eternal life in heaven, enjoying his glory, his treasures. I mean, it can only be described as heaven. So he appeared. Now, what I want to do is I want you to look, I want you to keep verse 11 in mind. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, look at chapter 3 and verse 4. Paul writes a little bit of a commentary on this truth that the grace of God's appeared bringing salvation for all people. Look at chapter three, verse four. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared. Okay, so we're talking about the appearing of Jesus again, right? Not just grace, but goodness, loving kindness. When all that appeared, what'd he do? Verse five, he saved us. Why? Because he brought salvation with him. That's chapter 2, verse 11. He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because you're special. Not because you kept your act together. Not because you're better than so-and-so. Not because you've kept the Ten Commandments. No, not because of works of righteousness, but, according to this passage, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Look, we're all dirty. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so he washes us clean. It says here, it's by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 7. So that being justified, that's being saved, declared righteous, being adopted by him. All those words are there in that word justified. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yeah, you get heaven. The glories of heaven. That's the grace of God. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? Now you need to listen to me carefully. The grace of God came, appeared, not only to give you all of that. The grace of God came not only to save you, but to train you, to transform you to train you to be like him. Where do you get that, Pastor? The next verse, verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What's ungodliness and worldly passions? Oh, well, that's a bunch of stuff other people do. That's like drugs and yeah, stuff like that. No. You know what ungodliness and worldly passions is? It's all those changes that he would make in your life, but you're not doing it. 
His grace trains you to stop. All those changes you know you should make, His grace trains you to make. And when we refuse, when we harden our hearts like concrete, when we refuse to allow those changes to take place in our lives, when we don't yield, when we fight, we say no thank you to the grace of God. Are you kidding me? We say no thank you to the grace of God? The most beautiful gift you could give us besides Jesus? His grace, it not only saves us, it trains us. It's a package. You don't get saved and get to neglect the training. It's a package deal. His grace trains us to kill the ungodliness and worldly passions that screw up our lives and keep us from being like Jesus. He transforms us by training us to be like him. You know, it's been a couple of years, but I preached a message, and the whole reason, I mean... <sighs> I shouldn't go down this road because it's going to take a long time. Let's just say it like this. Romans 8, 28. God works out all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Verse 29. To transform us into the image of his son. His purpose is to make us like Jesus. You, as a Christian, your calling is to be a living likeness of Jesus and his grace it cleanses us from the evil zits that mar our image bearing verse 12 tells us it trains us to renounce to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions look you don't get to take a magic pill and all of a sudden you stop sinning no, it trains us to renounce. What does it mean to renounce? It means to officially abandon. You renounce like you would renounce your citizenship. You formally abandon. You make the decision to walk away from those things that you're holding on to that are keeping you from becoming like Jesus. What a picture. It is a mark in the sand. It's a mark in concrete. You repent. We renounce ungodliness and the worldly passions in order to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what the text says. What does it mean to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age? It means that you make the changes that Jesus would make if he were living your life. To know him is to be transformed by him, to be trained by him, to live like him. He trains us. Now, I would be lying to you if I did not tell you that there was not another option. That's option A. There is another option. This is point number two. We could profess to know Jesus, but refuse to change. We could profess to know him, 
but refuse to change. In order to see this point, you got to flip over to chapter 1 of Titus, verse 16. It very clearly says, they, those folks, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That's your other option. Profess to know him, profess to know Jesus, but just keep being you. No change. Deny that he's better than everything in every way by staying exactly the same. Oh, you can say you know him. You can call yourself a Christian and go to church and do Christian things, but your lack of love and living like him? Well, that says otherwise. Remember, your life is a billboard. Your behavior, your actions matter. Now, this is the choice, this is the option that the Judaizers chose back when Paul originally wrote this book to Titus. Verse 10 calls them insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They lie to themselves and the people around them. What did Paul say to do to them there in verse 13? He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Listen, guys, I love you. Paul writes to a young pastor named Titus, and by default, pastors all over the world. And he wants me to warn you, he wants us to warn you that if you're pretending to know Jesus, but Jesus is not infiltrating your life, if he's not making those changes, you're in big trouble. Because you cannot taste and see that the Lord is good and it not change you. The other option is Judas. The other option are the Judaizers. Now the Judaizers, their insubordination and their empty talk and their deceit, it probably looked a lot different than our insubordination and empty talk and deceit, but it's still today insubordination, insubordination, empty talk and deceit. Look, people profess to know God, but they deny him with their lives. Does that describe you? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And that grace, it trains his people to renounce this ungodliness and to live lives that reflect Jesus. Paul goes on throughout this book and he's very helpful. He's very practical for people to let them know what this Christ's likeness, what looking like Jesus, what this change looks like in our lives, and even breaks it down for us based upon sex and age. We can take a few minutes at looking at some of these. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He talks to the older men. What qualifies a guy for being an older man, being 40 years or older? I am an old man, according to the Bible. 
He tells us older men that we're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. He looks at the men who are 40 years and older, and he says, look, men, you need to be sober-minded. You, you need to be sober-minded. You need to live your life with clear thinking, knowing that Jesus is real and he's coming back. Men, you need to be sober-minded so that way you can lead the churches. You can lead your wife. You can lead your kids, your grandkids. You need to be sober-minded. Don't get drunk on materialism. Don't get drunk on your 401k. Don't lead your family to hell chasing after the world's dreams. You need to be sober-minded. Christ Jesus is the one who is better than everything in every way. You better think clearly about that and live in such a way that reflects that. That's why he says next, dignified. You need to be dignified. What's it mean to be dignified? That means to live your life worthy of respect. That doesn't mean that you demand respect from people. That means you live your life in such a way that it is respectable whether or not people give you that respect or not. When you live like Jesus, you will be sober-minded and you will be dignified and there will be those that respect you and there will be those who do not. But that's what happens when you live like Jesus. He goes on and he says you need to be self-controlled. He tells everybody they have to be self-controlled. Let me just tell you that right now. Whether you are an old man, an old woman, a young man, or a young woman, what's it mean to be self-controlled? In a nutshell, it's, it's to be godly. It's to be godly. When you come up to these choices, whether or not you're going to follow Jesus and do what Jesus would do, or you could do what you want to do in your own flesh and sin, you're self-controlled enough to do what Christ would do. How controlled was he? Well, he was controlled enough, self-controlled enough, that he walked to a cross, even though he'd rather have that cup taken from him. That's what kind of self-control he had. It's a picture of self-discipline. You want to be self-controlled? You need to discipline yourself for godliness. Paul told Timothy that, his other young pastor protege. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For physical discipline, it's only of some value. But godliness, it's valuable for all things, both in this life, it holds promise, and for the life to come. Yeah, you 40-year-olds, you know that, 40-plus. You got to be self-controlled. He says you got to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness. You need to know the word. Sound in the faith. Sound in love. You're not like all those other guys at work. You're not like all those guys that throw their weight around. They got gray hair, a belly, or big muscles, whatever they got. You know how they are. They throw their weight around. They don't take nothing from nobody. Nobody. You're sound in love. You have a soft heart. You have a tender heart. You look out at those young punks and those other people and this, that, and the other, the people at the grocery store, the people that help you at the, at the restaurant. You look at all of them. And what happens in your heart towards them? You well up with warm-hearted emotion because that's what love is, warm-hearted emotion that will willingly sacrifice for their benefit, blessing, and good. That's who you are. You sacrifice for others. You fight to sacrifice rather than fight to sacrifice them. 
And you're steadfast. You're steady Eddie. You're as consistent as a clock. That's who you are. And you know what? Everybody's looking at you. And they're following your example and saying, when I grow up, I want to be like that guy. He's left now because he came to the first service. But Gary Floor, the guy we just hired to be our discipleship director, he's this kind of a guy. I'll follow him anywhere. Men, could I say the same thing about you? I should be able to if you're 40 or over. Oh, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to go this long. So, man, I just picked on you because you're first, okay? The second group of women are what Paul calls older women, which means none of you women in here qualify because <laughs> we just skipped this one. No. Older women, 40 and over. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. What does that mean? That means that you live in a way that is honoring the Lord always. You honor the Lord with what you do. Not slanderers. You've got your tongue under control. You got it under control. Do you know what Paul calls gossips? Literally? Diablos. The devil. You got control of your tongue. You don't make accusations against the brethren. That's the devil's job. You leave that alone. You're not slaves to much wine. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that life is so hard. We have so many pressures. He knows that we're tempted to run away and hide. That's what wine does. Just lets us hide. The thing about the world today is there's so many more places to hide, isn't there? Phones, Amazon. I mean, the numbers, the options are limitless. You're not slaves to any of that. It doesn't control you. You use it for your, for your good. They teach what is good. What? Yeah, women teach what is good. The controversy isn't over whether or not a woman should teach. The controversy is who they should teach. We're going to leave that one alone today. Here's what we need to know. You're to teach what is good, and who are you to teach? At least at this point, at least as far as Titus 2.4 says, the younger women. What's a younger woman? 40 and younger. Women, if you're 40 or over, you want to know what God's will is for your life? Disciple. Disciple the younger women. They're not just talking about your kids. It's talking about younger women who have kids. you got to be so exemplary, so dignified, so godly that you can pour in to these young moms and these young wives. That's when he transitions into young women. Verse 4, so train the young women. So women, young women, this is for you. That's anyone that's 12 to 40. Young women, train the young women to love their husbands and children. Look, Paul knows, God knows, that loving husbands like us is hard. Amen. <laughs> and us men are hoping you older women have a few tricks up your sleeves to help these younger women put up with us and love us and our kids. I'll be the first to tell you, it was hard. I was a hard child for my mom to love. I was ornery. My dad understood it. He was a lot the same way when he was my age. My mom couldn't comprehend it. Moms need help. Young women, get the help you need. 
God provides you that grace with these older women. Train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. That's that whole godliness, self-controlled stuff. Pure, you know what that means. Working at home, that doesn't mean you can't work outside of the home. But I think we all know the temptation of what it's like to go home when we're tired and neglect our responsibilities. I think Paul would tell all of us, don't neglect your responsibilities at home, whatever they might be, man or woman. You have to be kind, submissive to your own husbands. I mean, we could talk about submissions. We're all called to, we're all called to submit. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another. Chapter 3 is going to tell everyone to submit to all the authorities over us, so we can't really have a problem with submission. I just want to remind you that none of us can demand submission from anybody. Submission is a gift that we offer to others. So, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And then he moves on to the younger men. He keeps it simple with the younger men. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men, those are guys that are 12 to 40, to be self-controlled, period. He knows we can't expect much out of those guys. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Self-controlled, that same godliness. But he goes on. He puts a period there. And in verse 7, Paul, because he's writing to Titus, Titus is a young man. And so there's a period there after self-control. It doesn't mean you young men are off the hook. He's talking to Titus, young man. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. There you have it. If you're 12 or you're 39, in every respect of your life, you are to be a model for other people to follow. He goes on because he's talking to Titus. He says, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. But let me tell you something. Take the teaching out of it and it applies to all of us, but I'm going to keep focusing on you young men. Young men, you need to be men of integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Why does he tell us that? Because he knows what it's like to be a young man. Let me tell you what it's like to be a young man. So you're... I'm just going to bring light to the situation. Young men, we like to dabble with sin. We like to experience sin. And so what often happens is we'll hide from mom and dad or we'll hide from everybody and we'll go off and we'll sin in secret. The hard part about that is sin, according to the Bible, hardens our hearts. And so as you dabble in that sin, thinking you're okay and you're just enjoying it, hidden away in the corner somewhere, it's hardening your heart to the point where now you're going to be willing, as time goes on, to sin publicly. And now you're no longer a man of dignity because you're out doing shameful things in front of other people and you're showing everybody how tough, how cool you are. Look, the secret's out. You're not. And then what often happens is your mouth turns to garbage. It says sound and speech that cannot be condemned. Yeah, I sin. I don't care who sees about it, and I don't care. Paul says that is a demonic perversion of what a man is supposed to be. Young men, 12 years old and up, set an example in every area of your life. Be a man of integrity who does the right thing in front of people and when nobody's watching and then go out and show your dignity to the world so they can see the glory of Christ and say good things that promote the one who is better than all things in every way. That's your calling. 
Raise up above the filth of this world. Don't you see it's all a trap for you to get trapped? Jesus came to save us from that. To train us. To renounce such ungodliness. And be like him. And so Paul, he talks to the older men, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men. What's he say to everybody? He's basically saying, live like Jesus. Live like Jesus no matter your age. These descriptions are a picture of what Jesus would look like in your circumstance. The grace of God comes to save us, train us, and transform us to live like that. Church, we're ending 2023. We're starting 2024. May 2024 be a year that is marked by you in which you are resolved to live and love like Jesus, no matter how old or how young you might be. Let's pray. Oh, the grace of God, it's so incredible. Thank you, oh God. You've manifested in Jesus. You've shown us what it looks like. We're we get to experience and be showered with your love because of it. And then we get to share it with everyone. God, may this miracle take place in our lives. May we, think, may we all think soberly. May we realize what the consequences are of hardening our hearts and becoming like concrete, refusing to change. Keep us soft. Keep us moldable. Oh, God, that we would long to be, to live, to love like Jesus, that we might enjoy him forever. Oh God, for this mercy we pray, amen.